You're listening to Let's Talk AI. Okay, so welcome to Let's Talk AI. Today's guest is Sarisha Rambhatla. So who is Sarisha? Sarisha is an assistant professor at the University of Waterloo in the Department of Management Sciences, Systems Design Engineering, and also cross-appointed to the David R. Cheriton School of Computer Science. So welcome today, Sarisha. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on the podcast, Harold. Awesome. So basically, I'd like to under, we'd like to understand, tell us a bit more about Sarisha. How did this all start? Where did you do your studies? And how did you end up at the University of Waterloo as a, a professor? Yeah, that's a long story. So uh, I'll actually start by telling something about myself. Uh, here at Waterloo, I lead the Critical ML Lab. And where my research focuses on building machine learning models to leverage patterns from data, uh, specifically spatial temporal data to address critical applications in healthcare, such as surgery and transplantation uh, to industrial automation, uh, which can range from like manufacturing floors to like aviations and so on. And then also like more fundamental threats relating to explainability and trustworthiness of neural networks and representation learning in general. So uh, now we can go back to the, I guess, how I got started uh, with that preface. Uh, my research journey actually began uh, during my master's in electrical engineering at the University of Minnesota, uh, where I worked with uh, Professor Jarvis Hopped. And uh, this was on sparse signal processing on an audio forensic task. So essentially something like this, where both of us are talking, um, but let's say we just have a single recording and there are a lot of speakers. How do we actually uh, pay attention to a selective source? So, uh, so yeah, and so it turns out that building this uh, capability in machine learning models to be able to selectively separate out a source is actually pretty, pretty hard. So that's how I started. And uh, after my master's, I did go into, uh, I guess, the dark side into intellectual property litigation, where I actually was able to see very closely how uh, technologies actually change the world. So fast forward, it is now, uh, I guess, end of uh, 2013. And uh, at that time, by that time, I guess deep learning was taking taking off at that exact time, and I wanted to actually come back to academia. And that's when I did my PhD at the University of Minnesota. And this was, uh, I guess, my time away from academia did make me more mature researcher in that sense. And I delved deeper into statistical signal processing and machine learning and optimization and developed uh, bio-inspired models, uh, which can, with guarantees. So that is how, um, and at the end of that, uh, it was like, and then like all of this is now slowly getting into, and at that time, I guess there is, um, uh, machine learning or AI consists of people from a lot of different uh, subfields. And so that's how I got into um, AI. Okay. Wow, that's uh, I see what you mean. A long story. Okay, that's great. So I, I noticed in your profile that you run the Critical ML Lab here at Waterloo. What's that all about? Mm -hmm. So um, 
essentially I would like go back to thinking about at the end of my PhD. So I was doing uh, a lot of theoretical machine learning, uh, building what we call provable algorithms. So algorithms with guarantees. So it's interesting to think about uh, the kind of, uh, at the end of the day, we are solving like optimizations in machine learning. And all these problems are in fact, uh, inherently what we call non-convex. Other way to think about it is uh, we may not know, even if you solve a problem, you may not know if you found the best solution or even how to find that best solution is usually like not known. So this is where I was like doing a lot of theoretical analysis. But at the end of it, I was uh, not really um, like, uh, it, like with the advances in deep learning. It's like this is not the only way we can bring trustworthiness for specifically critical applications. So um, my lab here at uh, University of Waterloo focuses on building um, like leveraging all aspects of theory as well as uh, my um, experience during my postdoc, which is working on healthcare and um, surgery and all these kind of applications and trying to build out uh, trustworthy and reliable solutions. So that's what my lab does here at uh, Waterloo. And this is specifically focused on real world where a lot of assumptions that we usually have in theory do not hold. So how do you do that? It's like the focus of my work here. Oh, so this whole topic of trustworthiness, you know, I hear a lot of different perspectives on it. Can you dig in a bit more and what is trustworthy? What is non-trustworthy? Where's that fine line? What's that definition? I think there is no uh, one definition in in this, and then which is which is a good thing in the sense that we are still trying to understand how do practitioners want to use it defines trustworthiness. For example, in uh, my work with a university health network here on liver transplantation, uh, we may come up with, and this is with Dr. Mamta Bhatt at University of Toronto. Uh, on this thread, we are looking at uh, how do we understand the uh, trajectories of patients who are listed, listed for transplantation? So liver transplantation and um, a lot of models that are used uh, and which are like non, uh, let's say neural network based, they're highly, uh, like very popular in the area. So practitioners, they actually trust it. Now, when it comes to deep learning, we may develop models which can have better performance, but trustworthiness is like, I, I feel like a more human quality. Uh, where we need to understand how people would be using a particular technology and then uh, trying to either via explainability, so understanding how a model is making decisions and conveying that to a practitioner or, uh, or actually mimicking uh, the practitioner and their decision-making itself. Uh, so a number of ways to uh, like get to that. But at the end of the day, we are looking at whatever problem we are solving, is it is it useful and is it in line with what we call coherence, coherence between humans and how their decision-making unfolds and how models are making decisions, uh, do they align well? So this is, uh, I guess, a, a way to think about trustworthiness. Of course, there is different ways uh, in, in different applications and it totally is domain-dependent. 
uh, yeah, I guess that's why what also makes it pretty exciting. So does trustworthiness, do you think, uh, vary based on the sector of application? For instance, trustworthy on the health side versus, say, on supply chain? Are they similar or where are they different? Oh, that's a very good question. I do think it depends on the area. Um, mostly, I guess every area, they have some tools and techniques they rely on. And the experts uh, who actually like um, look up to these things. So whenever we bring on um, new models, and this is actually goes back to one of the courses I teach here at Waterloo is how do managers uh, make decisions and how do we connect that to like AI and machine learning is that um, humans in, in general are um, like they don't like making huge changes. So when we go, there is a huge human side here when we go to application area is to think about um, like what is, how do they currently make decisions and how can I, when I build a particular model, um, how can I align it with them and uh, what kind of metrics would they like to see to uh, to build trust and trustworthiness. Uh, yeah, so, so it's, 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 I guess, definitely um, uh, dependent on the uh, application. For example, as I said, for liver transplantation, they use uh, what we call as survival analysis models. And so whatever we build, uh, we do have like proper baselines and reproducibility and all those kind of things which can build trust. On um, We have another very active thread with uh, NAFBLUE, which is uh, an Airbus company. And it looks into, uh, we are actually uh, combining two areas here, uh, operations research and machine learning, very exciting, very uh, new um, in terms of how uh, machine learning is branching out into real industrial applications. And here we are trying to see, uh, we essentially will have baselines and uh, again, we will use explainability. What is the model actually relying on? Are these features something that practitioners actually use? Is, is something surprising? How can we dig into that? And um, uh, to actually make airline operations more um, based on like evidence-based research, I would say, because at the end of the day, there's so much uncertainty and definitely COVID has appended all, a lot of that. Uh, they end up doing things manually. So, uh, which is, I guess, uh, somewhat exciting and also like somewhat scary on how these people have amassed so much experience. How do you build that same experience into models? So yeah, do building uh, building trust in models, coming back to the point, um, is, is dependent on the area. And, and we have to talk to experts and we have to speak their language essentially and, and uh, convert uh, whatever language the model speaks into something that they can uh, they can appreciate and actually actually use. Um, so and then this is not meant in the sense of uh, essentially we are building models which would be helpful uh, to them based on what they tell us instead of saying, hey, this is what I built and you should now use it. So that is the like change in how I like think about problems when I talk to like experts and to build, um, I guess, more trustworthy models. Okay. This sounds like you're really blending in the human side and that's exciting to hear that's happening. So 
I, I first actually met you uh, a while back on an opportunity related to applying ML to supply chain and things like that. Could you, uh, and again, I guess that overlaps with your work in the management science. Could you give us a little more insight into that? So uh, my work, uh, in fact, looks at like uh, spatiotemporal um, time series and data analysis. And this appears in a lot of different contexts. It can be climate, it can be healthcare, it can be uh, like when it, it comes to COVID, you can think about like misinformation and all these threats. So when I came to management sciences, it is like a very, uh, I would say, a, a very unique uh, department where we bring in uh, experts from like almost social sciences and organizational behavior to operations research and uh, information sciences. And I belong to the information sciences uh, division there. And uh, the main thing to, I will give you an example of NAFLU itself uh, in the aviation industry and how we like combine uh, operations research and uh, machine learning. Uh, so in the aviation industry, for example, um, there are there is a I guess a bunch of people who would come up and say okay this is a schedule uh, four months from now now if you can like if you think about that uh, we don't know what what all will like change during that four months and uh, we don't know what the weather will be like on that day and and all the other things so they come up with the schedule and uh, and, and every airline does it and they agree upon specific time slots and so on but on the day off. Uh, they have to manage like crew, they have to manage the aircraft itself, uh, its maintenance and uh, costs and fueling costs and so many different things. So on the day off or the day before, uh, somebody calls in sick, somebody like, and then you can think about COVID and how that, like even like Toronto International Airport and how the, uh, how the situation has been over like past few years. Uh, somebody calls in sick, uh, weather is like has of course uh, is a huge factor there, and or the aircraft itself. Uh, you're waiting for the aircraft. There's some delay in the network somewhere else. It may not be even local to Toronto. So they in fact do it manually. Sometimes they even have to do it manually, like to schedule things out. Um, and uh, in in some cases they may have to think about hey i will then like fly at a higher altitude so that like my um, like i can go at a higher speed or, or so on or, or lower altitude or higher speed or whatever that is so in the end they end up spending like more fuel and even one disruption can like negate whatever like uh, the profits that a airline has accumulated for in the past few weeks so there are so many different factors here um and there is, so there is a scheduling aspect, which is the operations research. And uh, that is essentially in, in our project, it is led by uh, Professor Fatma Ghazara, who is like a leader in that area. And I lead the machine learning front where uh, we think about, let's forecast different aspects. Let's forecast for delays. Let's forecast for, uh, based on like past, based on what has happened in the past, can we uh, kind of minimize the, um, these kind of disruptions. So this is all data driven. We look at historical data and this, uh, and then, then we try to come up with, um, and then feed it into an optimization problem, which is the, like the scheduling part. 
and these can also be done together this is like a very very new area uh, i've seen like in the past uh, one year that has taken off um, this com combination of like operations research and machine learning so these data driven things and um it's such a large scale and thinking about like all these networks how and how they influence each other is uh, it's somewhere we see in like industrial applications or manufacturing or supply chain similar similar problems so uh yeah that's that's what the work has been on that front wow this is uh, exciting because you know everyone has only experiences it as a passenger and they hear their flight's been canceled and you know or postponed and now it gives you some context as you've explained it what's going on behind the scenes. Okay, so you did touch earlier on, uh, sorry, I did touch earlier on the, the critical lab. Is this uh, a broader team you're working with or others? You did mention one or two other professors you're working with in this space. Could you elaborate further there? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, this lab, I lead the lab. I am the director of the lab and this is, um, but I like I do work with a lot of people at Waterloo. Um, so, for instance, I do have uh, projects on um, across Waterloo. If you think about uh, the other threats, uh, there is one with uh, a lot of threats with the Vision and Image Processing Lab at the uh, Systems Design Engineering. So, uh, Professor David Clausey, Alex Wong, and uh, uh, Paul Figert and John Zilic, we uh, we work on multiple threads. One of them is with uh, Nissan AI and Mobility Lab in Japan. And this is on uh, human pose estimation uh, where we like got significantly good results, like 38% improvement uh, over state of the art. And uh, oh, this is like over, I guess, a few months ago. And uh, another with like, uh, again, with uh, the uh, WIP lab is Stat Leads. Uh, it's a sports analytics company. So we are now, uh, they're analyzing ice hockey and I'm not like, I'm not an expert in sport at all, but I look from a point of view of time series and how like you can think about these players as graphs and how they're evolving and at that abstraction, I guess. Uh, so uh, another uh, interesting things that are developing with uh, the WIP lab uh, is uh, our collaboration with Grand River Hospital. And this is, um, we are actually starting with bias and fairness. Like, is it even before we build a model, we need to understand are there pre-existing biases in the data by humans, which the model may learn and then propagate? So how do we actually think about it before we start doing anything else? So uh, that's also starting uh, recent, like in, in like next uh, few weeks, I would say. And um, yeah, and other, other than that, uh, there are always, I guess, new things, uh, which I not really can talk about at this point. Oh, you never know. Uh, but it's a, a lot of different things and very, very extremely like busy, but very exciting as well on how uh, Waterloo offers all these uh, avenues to branch out. So although I lead my lab, uh, all my students are working and collaborating with uh, a lot of different people across the university. And how many students do you have in total? Oh, I have, I think as of last week I had uh, four, but this week I think I have uh, five masters and I informally mentor uh, a PhD student in the WIP lab and I guess eight, eight uh, un 
undergrad research uh, associates. Yeah, it's a pretty big endeavor, I guess. Is, yeah, very busy. So, you know, you mentioned one word just in your last description there, fairness and bias. Is there an overlap, I guess, with fairness and trustworthy? I mean, they... oh, absolutely. Yeah, you touched upon a very good <laughs> uh, thread there. Um, I guess uh, there is, in fact, uh, it, it goes back and forth, I guess, uh, because when we start off, we can say, um, how are the model making decisions? And then you find out that the models are relying on uh, protected attributes. And then you can actually think about, hey, is that biased? Is that something that I want to learn? Um, or is my model making? And, and a lot of times, it's also uh, the area itself. I'll give you an example. Uh, in liver transplantation, uh, the the size of the liver matters a lot. So uh, that means that like someone like uh, me, who is like fairly petite, uh, would be clubbed in with children for liver transplantation. And um, I would actually not have the same uh, preference or priority to receive a liver transplantation. In fact, the group which is, so when I, if I just said, hey, oh, uh, the weight matters for liver transplantation, people usually would think that lower weight or something like that is like, it's highly correlated, but it is in fact uh, higher weight probably has you have better chances of receiving liver transplantation. Now, this is just based on like just data um, because just just for like, I will like from the point of view of if I am petite, then of course, someone younger to me, like who is a, ch a child or like a teenager would definitely re receive a high preference for um, in the order. So I'm disadvantaged at, at that a point, but if I find this in the data, I'm not surprised everyone knows about this. So there are certain policies which may impact a particular type of preference structure. But there are a lot of times where uh, these biases are not even uh, like more implicit and the practitioners, practitioners may not even know about it. And uh, that is where it, it becomes um, a more like a policy issue where we say, is there systemic bias against uh, certain groups that we should not be propagating? That was unintentional. Um, and that is what, where the distinction uh, comes in. And knowing, uh, for example, in the liver transplanta transplantation examples, the existing methods for interpretability just give you, um, hey, this feature is important. They don't tell you the polarity. Is it like supporting transplantation or is it like, uh, not supporting it. So for instance, it would just tell you weight is important. And then somebody might interpret that as lower weight or healthier, whatever, whatever is like new fad <laughs> is, is better, but that is actually not true. Um, and so knowing, so interpretability kind of helps us see which way it is actually biased or which way are like, how do things actually impact? The outcomes and interpretability is deeply tied in with trustworthiness. Uh, of course, trustworthiness is a higher bar, uh, but that is like a building blocks block towards uh, trustworthiness. Uh, so yeah, these kind of things actually um, exist across in different different uh, like application areas. You see it differently. Um, 
and that's what we have to be in tune with and um yeah so that's how these two things are related okay well thank you uh thank you for this uh kind of journey through this trustworthy and fairness and bias aspects it's a it's a good a good insight for us i'm not sure we've had any other of our um participants and let's talk AI have talked about that. So it's, uh, it's really good. Well, I think I just, again, want to say thank you so much today for joining us for let's talk AI and uh, Sarisha, I just want to say um, all the best in your research as you move forward. Yeah. Thanks a lot again for having me. Uh, I would just also like to give, uh, although it has only been like, I guess one and a half years here, I'd like to just, uh, thank uh, all the uh, Waterloo community here, uh, specifically UWN CERC group, who helps a lot with grant writing and also engineering research office. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot to them, I guess. And yeah, thanks a lot again for having me, Harold. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Excellent. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye.